Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Going Coastal podcast, the podcast of the Students and New Professionals chapter of the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and hosted by the one and only American Shoreline Podcast Network. It's me, Marissa Torres, and I'll be your solo host for this episode, but I am joined by Marie Pierre, or MP Delisle, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, or HUI for short. Now, MP is here to give us a lowdown on her research that she recently completed, um, her PhD at UCLA, if I'm not mistaken. And this is part of our one of our ongoing series where we like to spotlight the research of a current or former student, our student research spotlight series. So if you're familiar, this is what this episode is about. So you guys know the lowdown of um, get ready to have some knowledge dropped on you. So I'm excited to welcome MP. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Marissa. Awesome. Um, now, I, you did come as recommendation from John Miller, and I very much appreciate it. But as I was casually stalking your LinkedIn, I realized that I think you were you were at the last ASBPA National Coastal Conference in Long Beach, were you not? I was, yep, just down the road from us. So definitely attended that. Yeah, how convenient. I think I remember um, attending your presentation and I was uh, super into it, super excited. And I'm excited to, you know, for you to refresh my memory and also kind of go into more details about it. But first, I would love to get to know you better. So your what we first like to do is get to know the researcher, get to know the student. So you're a former student, just recently graduated, but what has been your academic background and experience up to, you know, where you are now? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from the Bay Area in California, and I was a competitive swimmer growing up. And so I actually chose my college based on some athletic recruitment with swimming. And so that's how I initially ended up at UCLA was as a student athlete on the swim team. Uh, I wanted to do engineering. I knew I wanted to do that. But when I applied as a student athlete, we didn't have to do the essay. And so I actually got rejected from engineering initially. And I emailed them and was like, hey, what's going on? Like, I I don't want to go here if I can't do engineering. Long story short, uh, I got a zero on the essay, and so I immediately was rejected from the School of Engineering. Uh, We got that sorted out, so I ended up going to UCLA. Uh, I swam all four years. My third year, I decided that I wanted a different challenge. Um, I really liked my academics in civil and environmental engineering. Uh, You know, swimming is something I had always done, and and I love challenging myself in the pool. But I definitely had some curiosity that I that I wasn't getting to be fulfilled in my classes. And so one of my friends said, hey, we have this new professor here. She does some ocean stuff. I know you like the ocean. You should talk to her. So I emailed her, got no response. It was radio silence. Um, I think I emailed her back another week or two later and was like, hey, like I really am interested in just talking to you about research. At that point, she responded to me and we met and really clicked at the first time we met. And I started doing research with her as an undergrad. Um, and that was awesome. That's how I dipped my toes into research, was really just looking at data. Um, and that turned into an offer to do a PhD. I initially said no. I said, you know, I can't commit to a PhD. 
let me do an internship. I had never been able to do an internship during undergrad because of swimming. So when I graduated, I said, I'm going to do an internship this summer and I'll commit to a master's thesis. And about two weeks into my internship, I sent her an email and I said, I'll do the PhD. Um, I just really found myself a lot more passionate about research than about industry. There's nothing wrong with industry. I just pretty quickly realized it was not where I thrived. Uh, And so then I did my PhD um, at UCLA as well. So I like to call myself a triple Bruin now, all three degrees from UCLA. Um, And that's how I I am, how I, that's how I ended up at Huey. Um, I was finishing up my PhD. I saw an application call for the Huey Fellowship and um, Britt Robinheimer and Steve Elgar are, you know, experts um, in many areas, but Britt, especially in the swash groundwater interactions. And so she was someone I knew that I, I would love to work with. And one thing led to another, it worked out to get funding for me. And that's where I'm at now. What a journey. Um, so it really sounds like you knew yourself and you knew kind of sort of maybe what you wanted to do you were able to recognize at different points during your academic path what you were into and what you weren't you were willing to go out and and try something new to figure out if if that phd was right for you you went out and were like "Mm, maybe let me just see what the real world is about it turns out it does suck and being (laughs) being a researcher is great Uh, being an adult is a trap so um i just really i just want i wanted to mention that because you know it's it's part of not being afraid to if you're if you're uneasy about something maybe trust your gut not don't just jump into something because of the security and the money if um if it gives you an uneasy feeling so um i'll just harp on that for folks but i i'm uh, kind of inspired that you you were able to do that at at a formative age, like at an earlier age, and I imagine that you would be, um, you know, more apt to do it further along in your professional career too, and not be afraid to take those chances. I love it. Yeah, I think it's you know your support system that you build around you, and I'm very fortunate to have a strong support system. And my advisor was very supportive of me trying industry. I think she was secretly very happy that I, that I quickly <laughs> realized it wasn't for me. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Taking, you know, I knew that if I didn't do the internship that I would always wonder if it was a better path for me. And so I think trying it out really set me on, okay, no, research is for me. Oh, that's awesome. Snaps for that. I did like the opposite. I just kind of jumped in whether or not it was good. And but, you know, here we are. It's a learning experience. <laughs> We're still figuring it Always. out. Yeah. Um, so one one of the questions that we tend to ask some folks is like how they got involved in the coastal field. So it sounded like uh, did you, you said that you started in, in civil and environmental engineering and that wasn't really fulfilling. So like what what was it that, you know, it's like, what did you think that you were missing? Yeah, so UCLA doesn't have a coastal engineering program. And we had absolutely nothing coastal related until my advisor came to UCLA in I believe it was end of 2016 or 2017. Um, I from a very young age, like I said, I grew up in the Bay Area along the Pacific Coast. And so I was always fascinated by the ocean. And when I got to college, or when I was applying um, to engineering, I initially put undeclared, 
But really what it boiled down to was I liked water. And so, yes, I was a swimmer. Yes, I grew up along the coast. I am sure those influenced my my desire to work with water. Uh, but that was definitely something where I was like, what engineering field really deals with water a lot? And that was civil and environmental engineering. Uh, I, you know, I, I did enjoy other aspects of civil, but I was always drawn to ocean. At one point, I thought I wanted to do ocean wave energy. And that's something that still really interests me converting ocean waves and um, into energy. I think that's awesome. Uh, that would have probably been mechanical engineering. <laughs> so I kind of got that one wrong. But it was really just being able to work on the ocean. And, you know, when you're doing field work on the beach, it's really hard to beat. Um, so I think that's really what drew it to me was the ability to, to do the work I wanted to do in a place that I wanted to be. It was very opportunistic that your advisor came in around that time then. It, it was honestly one of the best things. And I think it just goes, I tell a lot of people, you never know what connections you're going to make with people. I was just talking to a friend about how I loved the ocean and wanted to do something with water or the ocean. And she, from her other friend, heard about this new professor. And so it was like a chain of two to get to me, but it got to me. And so don't be afraid to share your passions with people, I think, is, is what I tell people. You never know who knows somebody else, right? When you talk about your, your circles of, of connection, they grow infinitely the more people you talk to about things. So I feel very fortunate had I not talked about my interests with my friend, I probably wouldn't be here today. So talk with people, talk about what you're excited about, and you never know who they might know to help you get where you want to be. Mm -hmm. Truer words have never been spoken. But also we're talking to a field of at least half introverts. Uh, so that <laughs> may or may not True. be natural to some people, but it, it there certainly is a benefit to it. Um, what do you think you might have done if that advisor, if you didn't learn of that advisor or if UCLA didn't end up with an ocean or coastal focused engineering degree? Do you think you might have um, left and gone to like transfer to a university that had that? You know, I don't think I would have just because swimming was really tying me to UCLA. Um, mm. And I did really love my time as an undergrad at UCLA and as a grad student. But I don't think that I would have left. I don't think that I would have gotten into research, to be perfectly honest. Um, mm. I have a family that is well educated, but research was not something that anybody had done before. And so it was very foreign. I went in very naive into research, you know, thinking that I would have to pay for my own PhD. If anyone's listening and isn't curious about it, you should never be paying for your own PhD. Um, not so, in an engineering field. Yeah, no, not no. in an engineering field. And so I, I honestly don't think I'd be in research. And I think I'd probably be in industry somewhere. And I, I think I could still be happy. But I think I would be living a, a very different life. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm glad that you got on the path that you were on. Now, I do want to, you have mentioned swimming a few times and I, um, I'm i curious, you know, um, balancing being a student athlete and a rigorous engineering program in undergrad as um, in terms of like, you know, time management and energy and the social life, that triangle <laughs> of, of work, sleep and social interactions, there's that aspect, but also... Um, how do you think being a student athlete 
during that time and even now, how does that translate into your academic or professional career? Yeah, there's a lot that can be said. I think anyone who has any time commitment outside of academics in college can relate to this, whether you're working to support yourself through undergrad or you're doing a sport or you're taking care of family. Uh, It's hard to balance that. And I think long-term, it's really benefited me in that when something needs to get done, I'm pretty good at creating a priority list. And knowing, okay, this deadline is tomorrow, this has to get done first, but also not pushing things aside. So, um, you know, if if something breaks at my house, and it needs to get fixed, I do it immediately, because that's how I was trained as a swimmer and having to do the course load as well was, I didn't have time or I didn't have the ability to push something off and get to it later. If it was going to get done, it was going to get done then or never. And so I think that serves me pretty well in terms of staying on top of my projects and getting things out the door in a timely matter. Um, I think, you know, when I think about how it's affected how I am um, outside of that and like managing the social, like you said, you know, that triangle of academics, of social, of athletics. I think what I did was I blended them together. So my best friend, I met on day one of my PhD, and he was in my lab. And so for that, right, working was hanging out with my best friend. And so similarly, in undergrad, my social group was a lot of the swimmers. And my social group was a lot of people that I was in classes with. And I didn't get to join any Greek life because I didn't have the time for that. But I think I kind of merged my social and the other areas of my life to still feel like I had that balance. I look back and I'm like, oh God, I had no balance. But uh, I think that's how I approached it to not feel like I was missing out. Mm, Interesting. I'm wondering, and we can talk about this later, but how (laughs) that, um, how the priority setting uh, method works when research is 80% failure, 20% success. <laughs> we can we can yeah. dive into that next, but keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess like to kind of wrap up the your background with a nice bow is during my LinkedIn stalking. Um, I did see that you are a, and you were and still are a, um, a strong participator in the Society of Women Engineers group, uh, or is it a is it a society? Yeah, it's the Society of Women Engineers. It's actually an international society, um, the largest. I think it's still the largest group of women engineers. How how was that um, being in that group? How has that shaped? How did that did that shape your academic experience, and how does it shape you now? Yeah, um, I will just say I love the Society of Women Engineers and everything that it stands for. I wasn't able to participate as much as I wanted in undergrad, but I did convince the athletic department, my another a water polo player and I convinced the athletic department at UCLA to pay for us to go to a Society of Women Engineers conference. And we did some promotion material for them and going to kind of be like, hey, look, we're women engineers and we're student athletes. And so that was I'd say really when I started to get involved with the Society of Women Engineers, 
when I became a grad student, um, I became the mentorship director at UCLA of the graduate division of the Society of Women Engineers, eventually became the director. And now I'm the co-lead of the early career professionals affinity group. So that's at the society level um, for the Society of Women Engineers. And I think the biggest thing is just the community of support. I think in coastal, at least in my experience, you know, I go to conferences and there's a good chunk of women or, or women identifying individuals at these conferences, which is great. But I think we've all been in those classes still to this day where there are one or two women and the rest are not. And so just having a community has been awesome, but also having a community that's not in academia. Most of the people in the Society of Engineers that are professionals are in industry. And so really getting to see their perspective on things is great. And yes, I'm in a leadership position, but I am always learning how to be a better leader from them. I think that's something that we can really learn from industry is how they shape and form their leaders. That's a bit different in academia. And so I think in terms of leadership, I've grown exponentially as a result of being a part of the Society of Women Engineers and the opportunities to present at conferences and um, you know, I went to the national conference last year and I was part of the collegiate competition and got to present my research to people who had zero idea about coastal engineering. And so how do you in, I think it was three and a half minutes or maybe it was four minutes, tell somebody about your research, what it means, why it's important and convince them that it's, you're doing something useful. And so just being able to communicate my science to a broader range of people that's been helped by SWE my leadership and just a community. And I think that's so great and so important to find a community, whether whether or not that's the Society of Women Engineers, it might be a running club, it might be something completely different. But finding that community for me was so essential to my success and happiness. Wow. If there's any undergrad or grad or even professionals, there's the there's the professional society, correct? Yeah, perfect. Yep. Yeah. You know, if if you're curious, this has been a ringing endorsement by MP to join Sweet. <laughs> Absolutely. And, or at least check it out. Be don't be afraid. Be curious. And um, that sounds like an incredible connection. It's an it's a national connection, international connection. Um, almost almost like our ASBPA um, um, uh, connections across the nation, uh, just being able to to. I'm going to say connect again, um, but to to talk with folks from all different walks of life and in all different stages of their personal or professional careers um, in across academia, industry, and government. So, ringing endorsement. I kind of wish that I did SWE um, in undergrad, but I did the National Society of Black Engineers instead. And that I also agree was um, it certainly it is the reason that I my resume looks the way that it does just through those connections. So um, can't, can't certainly can't stress that enough. Yeah. There's so many. Yeah. You know, there's, there's like the society of Hispanic professional engineers. There's so many different ones. Uh, if you go online and, and search one, I, I'm sure you can find one. So find your community. Yes. There's a community for everybody. You just have to be willing to try it out and find it. You did mention this um, incredible opportunity to communicate your research in three or four minutes. Um, oh, man. <laughs> you know, why? What is it? Why is it important? Why should 
I care um, and what, you know, what problem you're hoping to solve um, and and how does it affect coastal communities? You can certainly take more than four minutes, but it <laughs> is time to give us the lowdown. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I will do my best. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to anybody who's listening to this that sea levels are rising and that's a really big deal. Um, and we have all these different forecasting methods of predicting what's going to happen with sea level rise. These are getting better as we include waves and, and different things into these models. But something that is critically neglected in almost all cases is beach groundwater. And so when I talk about beach groundwater, I, I really want to say we're talking about the salinated groundwater table. This is not drinking water. You know, one time I did this presentation and somebody said, but but groundwater is drinking water. It's good. And I was like, oh, man. So talking about salinated, salinated water here, salinated groundwater, um, and it's neglected. And while you might not think that's a big deal, there was a study done by Rossell and Fletcher where they looked at Hawaii and they saw that if they modeled sea level rise in Hawaii, they got X amount of flooding. But when they modeled the, the sea level rise, including the groundwater table, they actually more than doubled the amount of flooding. And so this suggests that groundwater can be really important. I'll point out in Hawaii, the groundwater table is super shallow, meaning that it's super close to the beach. And so it's going to have a really big impact. And so if we start to think about these big coastal models that are saying you're going to have, you know, this many people are going to be impacted by flooding but you're neglecting groundwater, you could be severely under predicting flooding. And so we had this on one side of it. And then I had some data, this is what I started out with as an undergrad, some data that was collected in Southern California. And what we saw was that our high tide did not coincide with our maximum run up. So those excursions, how far up the water goes along your beach, they didn't coincide but it was actually the run-up that coincided with our maximum groundwater table. And this was lagged anywhere between zero to two hours from the high tide. And so we saw this in some beaches, not in other beaches, and we saw that signal vary, but what it suggested was that run-up was connected to groundwater. And in all the literature we talked about, we saw, you know, oh, run-up infiltrates these slosh excursions, they infiltrate and they can elevate the groundwater table, it matters for sediment transport, it matters for bed shear stress, these types of things. But everyone had this one-way coupling where run-up infiltrates, and that was it. There was nothing about, hey, does the groundwater table impact our run-up? And so with this data that we had, that was really the motivating, motivating question and, and looking at all this of, at Rossell's work and, and other people's work, not only theirs. But groundwater seems to matter and nobody had been looking at it. And so I really wanted to answer in my PhD, you know, how do beach groundwater dynamics influence our swash flows? You know, how does run-up change with our groundwater table? And so my first manuscript um, was basically how to learn how to model. Um, that was in open foam, in, in said foam specifically. And that was really related to sediment transport. So I'm, I'm not going to really talk about that. Um, but that really got my foot into the door of numerical modeling. And so that's another thing of you might not always get to exactly what you want to do right away. That was a stepping stone for me to get to research what I wanted to as a method for me to do it. Um, so that was on sediment transport, learned a lot, but also that wasn't something that really I was passionate about. I really wanted to look at this, these run-up interactions. 
And so um, what I did next was I actually developed a new model within OpenFoam. OpenFoam uh, is a framework that allows you to kind of take different pieces of it, different existing models and merge them together and make additions. And it's all open source, which is great because everyone can be adding to it and it doesn't cost any money for anybody. So oh, the reason we had to create our own model is because nobody had looked at these surface subsurface interactions and the flow exchange where surface water could impact the subsurface and subsurface could impact the surface. So myself, along with a former postdoc at UCLA, Yolu Kim, who's now an assistant professor in Korea, we worked on developing this new model called Settle a Flow, still with an open phone framework, to enable us to look at these interactions. And we uh, created this model. We validated it with some dam break uh, driven experiments that were done by Kickert et al. in 2013. And so that was a big thing, creating this model. It, it's a lot of work, but it was very rewarding because now we can look at those interactions between swash and groundwater and look at them directly. People had done some experiments before, but it's really hard to get these subsurface measurements at the resolution that you would need them to make any you know, distinct um, analysis of the physics that are happening. So that's where the numerical model really came in handy. We validated it uh, and then we looked at it. And what we did was we changed the initial groundwater table and looked at how that changed our swash, swash excursions. And um, we looked at this for a sand beach and a gravel beach. And what we saw was that when you had a higher groundwater table, your runup went higher. And so this kind of aligned with what we had seen observationally in the data. But this was for a dam break, so a single wave scenario. Um, and we saw that in the sand beach, we had a zero to 6% increase in the run-up position if you had a higher groundwater level, and for gravel, a 20 to 25% increase, which was, you know, that, that's kind of a lot, but this was a single wave. It was on a very idealized beach. Um, and so that work is currently in revision um, in JGR Oceans. So that should be out pretty soon. But that was just one piece of the puzzle. So now we had said, okay, swash impacts the groundwater table and the groundwater table impacts swash, which nobody had looked at that second part before. Nobody had looked at, does our groundwater table affect our swash excursions? Um, but like I said, it was only a single wave. So the last part of my PhD was to look at what happens when there are multiple waves that are more realistic to our coast, right? We never have only a single wave coming onto our beach. Um, so we did this uh, experiment again, but now for these periodic waves where you have different wave conditions, still looking at two different permeability beaches, sand and gravel. And what we saw was that it really does matter. Um, even on these periodic wave cases, we saw that the groundwater matters. And one important part was why does this happen? And that's, again, a beauty of a numerical model is we can really investigate this. And so we looked at specifically the infiltration capacity in a beach, as well as turbulence that occurs along a beach face. And I won't get too much into the weeds here, but essentially what we found is that when you have elevated groundwater levels, you're saturating the beach face. This causes a reduction in infiltration and beach face turbulence which therefore allows runup to propagate further on shore. So we're able in the model to really identify these three key mechanisms that mean when you have a higher groundwater table that you're going to have increased runup. 
And there's a lot that can be pulled out of this. Again, this was still pretty idealized, still a constant beach soap. Um, but right now there isn't any any great data for us to be able to further validate our model or to be able to look at this. And so this is my call uh, to action, I guess, if people have the ability to do lab experiments and field experiments to look at groundwater um, moisture and run up at the same time, those concurrent and simultaneous measurements are so important to be able to look at these interactions. Um, and, and we're doing some of that in, in my postdoc, we're, we're looking at some of this data, which is exciting. But, you know, there's a lot to be said about, well, how how does this interaction, we call it the slosh groundwater relationship, how does it change when you have different wave heights, when you have different permeabilities? What about beach slope? What about your wave period? There are so many factors that are going to impact it. So there's a lot of work um, that still needs to be done to really determine what beaches are at risk. At the end of the day, what beaches should we be concerned about the groundwater table? Are there other beaches that it doesn't have as much of an impact? And my goal, you know, my, my long-term goal is to figure out how can I improve these larger coastal scale models? Um, my model runs at around four by two millimeter resolution. And so I can run a few minutes um, and a few minutes takes several hours, you know, several days on multiple hours. Uh, and so I want to be able to take this work and, and my future work and eventually be able to improve our FEMA models, our NOAA models, all these models that are really meant to protect people from flooding and to help them plan for flooding, essentially, and and improve those. And so, you know, I think my takeaway from this that I hope people get is one, that groundwater, beach groundwater matters, um, and that we have to think about what this means in terms of our implications on coastal vulnerability. You know, what happens if you have a bay in the back shore that holds your groundwater table higher? Does that mean that that beach is at increased risk of flooding because of those higher groundwater tables? As sea levels rise, we know that groundwater levels rise with it. And so what does that mean for the swash groundwater relationship? Are we going to see increased flooding because of this? But also, you know, our conventional methods of protecting from sea level rise, you know, seawalls and beach dunes. How do those interact with the groundwater table, especially for something like a concrete seawall that can actually inhibit the groundwater table from having flow? And, and there, are, there are several people who've looked into that. But how does that, how does that inform our decisions? And I guess don't neglect groundwater um, if you can, right? Or if, you can, if you can include it, it should be included. Um, and I'm excited to really continue this work and, and figure out how to better plan for, for coastal vulnerability and expand these results from this relatively small scale model to our field experiments and see what we see in nature. Um, so it's definitely longer than the three or four minutes, uh, but hopefully that gives you a little, a little bit of an idea of, of that swash groundwater and, and the research I do. A little bit of an idea. Wow. I <laughs> feel like I just learned a master's um, with that entire description. That's incredible. Um, very well done. Very thorough. And you do sound so passionate about it. And um, I'm just like impressed uh, that, you know, you're, 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 you are so passionate about this PhD work and the PhD didn't deter you away from research with it might for some people. And you're like, 
gung ho to continue it and and see it through. And you know, uh, hats off, snaps for you. Um, I I would I would agree with you as a numerical modeler myself, more on the meter scale in two dimensions. Um, I understand the pain of numerical modeling and that that particular research that's 80% success, 20% failure. And then if if you're modeling, if you're doing numerical modeling, it's 95% failure, 5% success for sure. Um, it makes the success so moving. sweet. Uh, that's what we live for. That's the only reason we're still here. <laughs> it feeds us. So <laughs> of course I have a few questions. Um, this this is just incredible. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, like too much time, like getting too far in the weeds. So I might save some of these to talk offline. Um, but I guess I just want to say, um, you know, Personally, I had never even thought about the groundwater, and I've also been in the coastal field for a, a decade now, and your research is the first that I've ever heard of it and and um, had even considered it. So where did this idea come from? Was like How, how did this come about? I really have to, to give the credit to my advisor. She... Um... She, when she did her, she did her postdoc, I haven't even said her name. It's, it's Professor Timo Glean. Um, when she did her postdoc at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, she had taken some data. Um, and this is the data that I talked about I did in my undergrad, where she noticed that maximum flooding was not occurring at high tide. So it was really her intuition that led to this. And she kind of gave me the data and didn't say anything, which I appreciate. She let me find the discovery on my own of like, hey, this isn't lining up. Am I, to be perfectly honest, I thought that I had done the daylight savings time wrong because we have these consistent hour offsets um, between the groundwater table and the tide. And I was like, I did something wrong. And she's like, no, like I saw that in nature. So that's really all where it stemmed out from. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, speaking like with tide, you notice there was a time lag and I imagine... All of your field experiments so far have been on the West Coast, uh, which has a very different mm -hmm. wave and water climate than, say, the Gulf or the Atlantic um, and different and different beaches for sure. So I guess um, this this time lag with tide, would you say that, um, you know, on the East Coast, we're more apt to get. Um, tropical cyclones more apt to get hit by tropical cyclones on the Gulf Coast, especially. So, the current understanding or thought is that if a tropical cyclone were to approach um, the coastline during high tide, like max high tide, or during a flood, uh, the flooding sequence of tide, then we would have our maximum inundation. Now, do we think no? So our estimates will probably be highest then, but there it sounds like there's some room for error that it could actually be worse if the at a later point, like lagging the high tide where the groundwater is actually more saturated, if a hurricane were to um, approach during the initial stages of the ebb tide when groundwater is higher. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, you you definitely pointed out a future research question of mine is what happens with these more extreme conditions. And I definitely think that our risk is going to be higher on the falling tide. 
because you have that saturation of the beach face, which you still have right when you have the, you know, at high tide, um, and then it drops. And so you're going to have that saturation. So I definitely think we should be more concerned about falling tide rather than rising tide. And there's a paper I read recently that talked about the storm setup. Don't quote me on this, but the storm setup is actually worse during a falling tide or low tide than it is during a high tide. And so both of those combined really lead me to believe that we should be focused on the high tide and the falling tide more so than the flood tide. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that. um, It's I had never considered that. This is such an interesting question. Now I'm totally into it. And (laughs) one thing that I'm, you know, uh, that I'm a little worried about, I guess, is that we're kind of on the clock. Um, We are, it feels like we're running out of time to provide the best solutions, to improve these models, to give people the best estimate and um, our best predictions because Miami is underwater, Houston and or like people on the ghost, they're underwater more and more days out of the year. And I'm just curious, like this, this is a brand new or it feels brand new development in our potential ability to more accurately estimate, predict and inform coastal flooding hazards but it's in its infancy. So how are we going to get from a C- a computational fluid dynamics model that takes days, weeks to run a very thorough, very thorough uh, um, simulation to represent the best physics that we can. And it's, it's going to take so much time, X amount of time to get it to a point where it's in an operational model like advanced circulation, like AdCirc, like ST-Wave and WaveWatch 3 and Slosh and, and, and all of these operational models that do currently inform our coastal hazards analysis. Do we have enough time? <laughs> Yeah, not to be existential, but no, also be I, I existential. Think, no, I think that's a, a perfectly valid question and an important one. And I think that points to the urgency of getting more people to do this type of research and to consider it. Um, I think kind of when I've thought about how do we bring this to, you know, the regional scale, for me, I really think about creating a parameterization to include it in these reduced complexity models. There's a lot of physics in these CFD models that are, are great when you want to look at all these processes. But if I could just tell you, you know what, this really this groundwater impact really just depends on your sediment size and your beach slope. You know, I'm thinking like a Stockton equation, right? It depends on your beach slope, your wave condition, X, Y, Z. If there is a, an, a parameterization that can be like, okay, it depends on these three variables, um, and now you can just put this simple equation into your swash, to your adser, to swan, all these different, you know, bigger models, is that sufficient? And so what I hope to do is use the numerical model to tell me, okay, we really saw that turbulence and infiltration were important. We haven't been able to separate out the contribution of infiltration capacity versus the contribution of turbulence. Um, but it's not feasible to get turbulence, you know, along a beach for these large models. So um, 
figuring out what physics are important using field data, using lab data, which there's, there's a paucity of that right now. So we definitely need more of that to say, okay, this beach had this happen, this beach had this happen. So clearly your sediment, in my opinion, I think it's going to be sediment size, um, beach slope. I think those in permeability are probably going to be the most important based on some work that I've done. Um, but whether that can still even be done in time, like you said, that, that question of urgency is so important. Um, so I, I hope it doesn't discourage people. I think that urgency really should excite people because it means that what you're doing matters, right? Um, so I think whether we get to it in time, maybe not for Miami, maybe not for Florida, uh, but hopefully hopefully we can get to a point where we can improve our models. And, and you know, I'm very driven by the idea of protecting our coastal communities. They're so important for so many reasons. Um, and so if I can help improve that protection, um, that that's really what motivates me. Oh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Can't <laughs> let that tunnel collapse on us. No, totally understand. Yes. Um, so during your research time, so I guess during your PhD, what were your biggest challenges and your greatest accomplishments? or experiences? Um, I feel like I have to mention the pandemic that was smack dab in the middle of my PhD. Um, but I think we all know how, how that impacted all of us. I think it was a little bit of a harsh transition for me to go from classes to research in that in classes, it was very much like, this is the next step. I knew someone could go and help me. If I got stuck, I could go to the professor, go to the TA um, but in research, there is no answer, right? <laughs> we all, that's, that's a kind of a, an interesting thing to learn. Um, and I think I could have been better prepared going into my PhD of understanding that transition. Um, that was, that was a little bit tough. But once I realized, you know what, like, I'm the one who's creating the answer, and people are going to challenge me, but viewing those criticisms or those challenges as improvement for everybody rather than an attack on me. Um, that was, that was something I needed to learn. Um, and I think one of, one of the things, and one of the things I guess I'm, I'm proudest of is maintaining the balance and it's not a balance. I think we all know that it's not truly a balance, but maintaining the things that I wanted in my life around the PhD. Uh, I think it can be really hard as a PhD because you're kind of this weird, I'm a student, but like I'm not taking classes and there's not a lot of structure. Uh, and so for me, maintaining my relationships with friends and family and just maintaining my overall happiness, I think it sounds really simple, but I think to me, that's something I'm proud of that I came out of the PhD still motivated, still excited to do research and not burnt out was something to me that's um, I'm proud of. Impressive. hundred um, <laughs> percent. I don't want to say like I'm speechless, but like um, the, the, the concept, like learning at that point that the answers are coming from you and it is it's kind of your job to defend them um but 
it's not, you are not your research. Your research is outside of you and it's not an attack on you personally. Um, I feel like that is a lesson that maybe most people learn in their PhDs, but considering I jumped from my master's straight into research, we're still learning that. And by we, I mean me, myself, and my alter egos um, <laughs> are still learning that and we're getting better. So that's good. But, you know, shout out to everybody out there that if you do have those feelings, take a breath and it's not about you and it's okay. Everything's fine. And I think, you know, we talked about how, you know, 80% is failure and 20% is successes. Another thing that I had to switch my mind frame on was a model failing or something failing is still a result. And I learned that a lot from people who did experimental work, especially on the environmental engineering side where they can write a whole paper on something that didn't work and just reframing that in my mind of like, okay, this didn't work. Check that off of things I tried. Cool. Moving forward. Like that is a result in itself. That shift. I definitely, that was a, a pretty pivotal shift for me of maintaining my happiness and then maintaining excitement and not thinking that this is never going to work. Um, so yeah, that, that was important too. Yes, I literally just had this conversation with one of the students that I'm mentoring this summer um, where we've been running into roadblocks and roadblocks and haven't been able to produce a tangible product yet. But any his like feeling that, you know, I, I don't have what it is that we said we were going to do yet. Is that OK? And I'm like, absolutely. What you've been doing is X, Y and Z. And that is incremental progress towards this overall goal that is research. You're getting the full experience, baby. Like, this is what your everyday is like, and it's totally okay. That mindset needs to be there. Um, you know, speaking speaking of that mindset and mentoring, so you mentioned that, you know, you were a mentorship director um, in SWE, and I believe uh, that you are continuing in your mentorship I don't want to say journey, but like you're continuing with, uh, you know, being a mentor as well as being a mentee. Um, how did you, I, I know that you're involved in the ASBPA mentoring program. So how did you learn about that and how did you get involved? Um, and how are you liking, I hear that, um, <clears throat> our very own John Miller is your mentor. So yeah, like, he's not here. Good. So how's that going? <laughs> <laughs> um, so to answer your first question, I think I just got an email from ASBPA from the student student and professional network or SNP, SPN, S, whatever one it is. Sorry for butchering SNP. Um, okay. SNP. Okay. Thank you. Um, and I signed up for it and it's been great. John is fantastic. And I think, um, it's so important to be a mentee to be a better mentor, in my opinion. Um, and I learned, you know, I, I, John and I, it's pretty recent that we got paired up. Um, but it, I've already learned so much. And it's just so fun to talk to somebody different and hear a different perspective. Um, and especially just knowing my future plans and, and seeing him in his role and interacting with students. And that's something that I want to do. Um, and so that that's been awesome. I also, um, one of my one of my biggest mentors over the past few years, I got through the Society of Women Engineers. They have a similar mentoring match program, um, and she has been so pivotal in helping me navigate 
whether I wanted to stay in academia after research because mid pandemic, I was like, Oh no, this is not for me. Like, I know I didn't like industry, but it has to be better than this. Um, and you know, she helped me navigate where those feelings were coming from and, and kind of, um, that no academia is actually where I want to be. Um, so I think mentorship is, is so awesome. I love mentoring younger students. Um, I love, I, I think I prefer being a mentee because I love to learn and get help on things that are, are that are troubling me or, you know, just having another person to bounce ideas off of and just talk to and, and hear different perspectives. So I think it's so important. I realize, you know, I, I have gone through these formal mentorship um, pathways, both leading it at UCLA and being part of it with ASBPA and with SWE. But I think there's so many informal mentors as well. And it's all about how you how you shape that and mentors that are my colleagues, mentors that are um, more junior than me, mentors that are more senior than me, right? Like there's a whole, whole range of that. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's so awesome that ASBPA is doing this. And I don't know, I, I don't, I know this isn't the first year, but I think it's so awesome because coastal engineering is, is uh, relatively small in my opinion. And, you know, you go to conferences and a lot of people know each other, which is awesome but sometimes it can be an, a bit intimidating to jump in on a conversation if there are five people talking to each other and you're like, oh man, how do I join this conversation? So the fact that there is this mentorship group that's starting, you know, I know if John and I end up at a conference, I am sure he would introduce me to people because that's what a mentor does, right? And so um, I think it's so awesome. Ooh, awesome. I've been meaning to sign up. I keep forgetting. Um, do it. Remind me to do that. Recommend it to others. <laughs> Everybody out there, if you're curious, just do it. And I'm sure you won't regret it. And the worst, it's amazing. Yeah. And the worst that happens is you have a conversation with somebody um, and that's it. There's no obligation to keep talking to somebody if it doesn't work out for you. So true that. So you mentioned that, you know, you really, one of your mentors got you to stay in academia. And so you just graduated. You're a postdoc at Huey. What, uh, what do you see for yourself as in terms of next steps, are you going to stay in academia or where are we going? Yeah. yeah. So I actually have an offer to be a professor um, starting next year. And so I'll, um, I'm super excited about that. Uh, it should be a really great opportunity. It's actually at the university that my mentor is at. So um, it was, she wasn't involved in the hiring process at all, but uh, the reason I applied was because she had spoken so highly of it and I saw how happy she was there. Um, and it worked out for me. I went through the application process and was chosen and they let me defer a year to be able to do the postdoc. And so I'm really, really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to staying in academia. Um, I'm excited. I know it'll be a challenge, but it's an exciting one. That's amazing. Do you see yourself being able to continue your research path and, and trying to solve this problem in that professor role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's more of a evenly split teaching and research uh, institution. And so it'll be a bit more of a challenge. There's quite a bit of a teaching expectation, but it's an awesome department with a lot of collaboration. And so I think, you know, not only do I see myself continuing this, but also broadening out um, into different areas. So I'm excited. Uh, at UCLA, it was kind of our own lab was the only coastal lab at our school. And so it was 
quite, quite small. And when we wanted to do collaborations, it was, you know, from other universities. So I'm excited to have that collaboration in house when I go there. Oh, that is amazing. Now, I know you can't exactly say where you're going to end up being a professor right now. But if anyone is interested in following MP's research and what she and her next five, 10, 20 years, uh, you know, st lightly stalk her on LinkedIn. She keeps it pretty <laughs> up to date and is pretty active on there, especially if you're interested in SWE as well. There's, I saw some content. There's there's some good posts. Yes. There. So check. reach out. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that'd be great. All right. I have one final question for you. And we ask this to all of our guests. Now, what advice would you give to a student or a young professional who is interested in pursuing a career or a position similar to yours? Go for it. Um, don't, don't be afraid to go for it. And I think don't be afraid to reach out to people. Um, that's what I tell most of my mentees when they're intimidated to reach out to somebody is the worst that someone's going to tell you is no or no answer. And that's it. And the more you reach out to people, the more comfortable that you'll get with it. Um, I, you know, I understand that some people that's not their most favorite thing to do. And so send an email. Um, but, but don't be afraid. People love mentoring people love helping other people out um and so i think that's probably my biggest advice go for it and don't be afraid to reach out snaps to that yes and in this community we're all nice here we all know the struggles and they'll be nice to you promises well i can't promise anything but there's no harm in trying <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, MP, for all of this. This has been a wonderful conversation. This hour flew by. I feel like I learned so much and I will definitely reach out to you offline because as someone who's also a numerical modeler and interested in the tides and title analysis, I think, you know, we can have a little conversation there. Keep the train moving. Love that. Let's do this. <laughs> and up. Uh, also, yes. but will you be attending the National Coastal Conference this year in Providence? I'm hoping to since I'm um, not too far away. So fingers crossed I'll be there. Awesome. Let's meet officially sort of uh, at that conference if you're able to go. I know I like tangentially <laughs> met you last year, but let's meet officially yes. this year. That'd be great. We'll love that. Awesome. Well, we'll thank that. you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and having you on. Thank you, Marissa. Well, I mean, that leads right into it. So we were just talking about our mentoring program. MP is part of the mentoring program. John is part of it. I'm about to be part of it. Why aren't you part of it? We invite you to participate. So you can sign up and request a mentor to be a mentor or to be a mentee. And students and new professionals can join. Professionals can sign up. You've heard all about it. There's a ringing endorsement. Just um, I believe that's on our website. There's some posts floating around on our Facebook and maybe LinkedIn pages as well. Go check it out or send us an email at asbpa.snp at gmail.com. And as you just heard, our National Coastal Conference will be in Providence, Rhode Island this year, taking place from October 11th through the 13th, ending on a Friday the 13th, but fingers crossed it'll be just fine. The theme this year is Anchors Away, Revolutionary Times for Coastal Habitats. Registration is now open, and while the presentation abstracts closed June 1st, poster abstracts are open, and they're open August 15th, as are the Professional Project and Student Award nominations. So check out ASPPA.org slash conferences uh, or awards to learn about um, those um, 
due dates and where to submit. Also on your radar, if it's not already, the Young Coastal Sciences and Engineers Conference Americas, or YCSECA, which we did a segment on, I think, in our first year on this podcast. So that's actually taking place um, this August from the 10th to the 12th in Madison, Wisconsin. Interesting place to have a coastal scientist conference, but we'll let it slide. Abstracts were due in June, but I believe registration is still open if you haven't registered yet. So get on that. Of course, nominations for ASBPA's Best Restored Shores Award are now open. Celebrating its fifth year this year, the award showcases well-designed and implemented projects, focusing on restoring natural resources to enhance shoreline resilience by addressing environmental degradation, storm impacts, climate change, and sea level rise. Nominations are being accepted now through August 1st, again at ASPPA.org. And last but certainly not least, um, is this your first time listening to this podcast or maybe it's your 12th time? Either way, you must enjoy my sultry voice and our witty banter. You too can support Going Coastal while aligning your brand with the ASBPA Students and New Professionals chapter. We'll customize a sponsorship package for your company to deliver on your marketing goals and connect with the next generation of coastal pros, including MP here. So share your story and top coastal and ocean podcasts and on Coastal News Today. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact our amazing producer, Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Thank you.